Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Today is going to be the last in our Advent and Christmas series for 2023 and I want to read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 to 18. Uh, the kind of final part of the story of the visit of the Magi from the east. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Well, our reading today introduces a jarring note to the joy of the Christmas story. And so it's perhaps not surprising that Matthew 2, 13 to 18 is rarely read at Advent and Christmas services nowadays. I've been attending church services since I was 13 years old and I don't remember ever hearing a sermon on these verses and certainly their part of the story never features in any nativity play. To modern readers, they rather spoil the festive mood, and so one wonders what Matthew was thinking when he included these upsetting details. The Bible commentators all tend to just note that Matthew uh, quotes here from the prophet Jeremiah, and then they simply make the point that this little horrific scene fulfills a biblical prophecy and wasn't Herod a terribly bad man, now let's move on, nothing to see here. We don't want our Christmas ruined by the thought of murdered children, thank you very much. The story is captured well in this painting by Leon Cognier. Painted in 1824, it is called The Scene of the Massacre of the Innocents, and it's both a subtle and a powerful work. It would have been easy for the artist to focus on the violence that immediately springs to the imagination upon reading these verses, but instead, in a tragic parody of the nativity scene, he focuses on a mother and child. We may want to look away, but here in this powerful painting, Cognay forces us to look, to confront the reality of human wickedness, and the result is both penetrating and powerful. He focuses on a terrified mother cowering in a darkened corner, trying to muffle the cries of her small child, whilst in the background is sketched out the horror and chaos of Herod's slaughter of Bethlehem's children. In the background we see another mother fleeing for her life, carrying her own children pursued by a soldier wielding his sword. We don't need to see what happens next. We know. And just in case we don't get it, Matthew makes it clear by quoting Jeremiah, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. 
population models suggest there were probably around 30 children that age in Bethlehem at that time. But whether it was one child or 30, it was a horrific and devastating atrocity for the people of Bethlehem, and not just Bethlehem. Herod wanted to be sure that the new king would never sit on the throne, and so he included children living in the surrounding areas. But as far as Herod was concerned, this was not an atrocity at all. It was merely good political management. In fact, I doubt that it would have crossed his mind to do anything other than what he did. Herod was very much a man of his times. Racially, he was an Arab. His father was from a tribe in the southern part of the Holy Land called Edomia, and his mother was from Petra in modern-day Jordan. He was the only child in the family with a Greek name. Religiously, he was Jewish. Sometime around 135 BC, the Jewish ruler Hyrcanus conquered Edomia and forced the people to convert to Judaism or die. And he also made Herod's grandfather the governor of the province. Culturally, he was Greek. By his time, thanks to Alexander, Greek culture had spread across Palestine and the Greek language was the common language used between different people groups um, around that part of the world. Politically, he was Roman and he sided with the Romans in every major conflict during his lifetime. As governor, he was a powerful man, but his power and authority were delegated power and authority. He ruled at the whim and the good grace of the Romans. And if he did a bad job, he could be replaced. The Romans cared little about who ruled as long as they got the job done and kept the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He was therefore a fearful man. He lived with the constant fear of being replaced by the Romans, by by someone else, uh, or by someone in his own family. In fact, he had two of his favourite sons strangled and his favourite wife murdered. Killing all the two-year-old peasant boys in the village or two would not have troubled him in the slightest. It was the obvious solution to the problem of a new child king. The Canadian singer Bruce Coburn exposes the truth of a common saying in our culture when he writes in one of his songs that when the ends don't meet, it's easier to justify the means. When we no longer see others as people but see them as a means to our ends or as a hindrance to our ends, then there is no limit to what we will do to them. Whilst we might want to turn away from that uncomfortable truth, the artist confronts us with it. He makes us look. Here in this dark corner, this woman wraps herself around her doomed child, possibly hoping that in the corner where she has taken refuge, she will not be noticed. The artist paints her with her bare feet exposed. It hints at her vulnerability. There is nowhere for her to run. And in any case, in bare feet, she wouldn't get very far. Her choice of hiding place itself only serves to emphasise the fact that she and her child are cornered. As Christmas scenes go, it could not be further from the scene portrayed by Luke in Luke 2.14, where the angelic host fills the night sky with their brilliance and sing, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on those whom his favour rests. 
tell that to the mothers of Bethlehem. For just two years later, when Herod slaughtered the children in Bethlehem, there was no peace or goodwill, just the horrific reality of unbridled evil. The woman stares out of the canvas directly at the viewer, at you and me. As one writer puts it, it's as if we are one of Herod's agents of death and we have found her. She glares at us in horror. Cogni is making us a party to the massacre of the innocents. In her eyes there is the accusation, how can you do this? How indeed. Yet men and women have done and continue to do much worse. As I said, we don't read this passage often because we don't want to think about the horror of it. But Cogney forces us to confront the truth that if Jesus had not been born, these children would not have died. One early church writer therefore describes these murdered infants as the first martyrs of the church. It is perhaps not surprising that the murder of the innocent should be absent from our Christmas services and sermons, yet Matthew includes it in his gospel and so we must wonder why he does so. The standard reason given is that Matthew wants to present Jesus as the new Moses and so he tells a parallel story for Moses was also born amidst the slaughter of the innocents. Pharaoh had decreed that every Hebrew male Hebrew child should be killed at birth. And so Moses was placed in a basket on the Nile by his mother. However, I can't help but wonder if there's something more to it than just that. Matthew includes it to remind us of what the world is like and of what we are capable of and therefore why Jesus came. Throughout 2022 and for most of 23, our TV news shows were filled with the horrors of the war in Ukraine following Russia's invasion of that country. And those images only left our news bulletins to be replaced with the horrors of the war in Gaza, if you can call it war, as Israel uses all its military might to retaliate for the atrocities committed by the terrorist group Hamas on the 7th of October. We have almost become used to seeing dead children on the news. And so we change the channel. We don't want our Christmas ruined. But like Cogney with his painting, Matthew makes us look. Professor Kenneth Bailey suggests there's an underlying issue in this text about faith in God in a world that appears godless and cruel. The 20th century has seen more death from conflict than any other. Bailey himself spent 40 years teaching in Egypt and Lebanon and Palestine, Israel and Cyprus and he lived through many conflicts. In Lebanon alone there were seven different wars in 35 years and one of them lasted for 17 years. People saw friends and family killed by bullets and bombs and all the horrors of modern warfare and children were not spared. And he poses the question, how do people retain their faith under such conditions? One answer, he says, is that they remember both the Christmas story, all of it, including this part. They remember both the Christmas story and the cross. 
A mindless, bloody atrocity took place at the birth of Jesus. After reading that story, the reader is not caught unawares by the human potential for terror that shows its ugly face again at the cross. At the beginning of the Gospel and at its conclusion, Matthew presents pictures of the depth of evil that Jesus came to redeem. This story heightens the reader's awareness of the willingness on the part of God to expose himself to the total vulnerability which is at the heart of the Incarnation. And he concludes that if the Gospel can flourish in a world that produces the slaughter of the innocents and the cross, the Gospel can flourish anywhere. And so as we look at our TV screens and see the senseless slaughter in Gaza and in Ukraine and elsewhere in the places like Yemen, other places around the world where conflict is going on but not widely reported in our news, we are reminded that the Gospel can flourish even there For real peace is only possible when people surrender their lives to the kingship of Jesus. Matthew's inclusion of this horrific story reminds us not only of why Jesus' birth was necessary, that such evil exists, that men can willingly slaughter the innocents in this way. It also reminds us that all empires, principalities and powers in human history are opposed to Jesus' rule and reign. However, his birth heralded the dawning of his kingdom and the end of all others. It wasn't just the end of Herod's, it was the end of all kingdoms. In Luke 1, Mary sings a song of praise that includes at least 18 references to passages in the First Testament and it speaks of bringing rulers down and lifting up the humble. It speaks of feeding the hungry and sending the rich away empty. In human terms, her song is a political manifesto for turning the power structures of the world upside down. Jesus' birth brings about nothing less than a political and social revolution. As one theologian puts it, the coming of the Christ was to set and train a revolution of love and justice that would eventually sweep away all tyrants and free all victims and end all wars. John 1 and 5 reminds us the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is that light. A few years ago I spent a year studying the book of Revelation and I came to understand that whilst it's primarily a pastoral letter to the struggling persecuted churches of Asia Minor, it's also a sustained critique and condemnation of empire itself. Although the Apostle John never actually names Rome in the letter, he uses Babylon as a representative example of all empires throughout human history. And the point John was making was that he and his contemporaries were living in the idolatrous, blasphemous empire of Rome, but Rome was really just the latest incarnation of Babylon. And like all incarnations of Babylon, Rome too would pass away and other empires would take its place. And the angel cries out at the beginning of Revelation 18, Babylon is fallen, the great city is fallen. The fall of Babylon at the victory of Christ and therefore the fall of all earthly empires and their Babylonness is an inevitability because of the victory of Jesus. 
One day the kingdom of God will be present in all its completeness and all other empires will come to an end. All other tyrants and rulers and terrorists will bow the knee and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is king. The disciples of Jesus, therefore, should neither fear the empire, whatever incarnation it takes in any age, nor should we be seduced by its power and authority. The kingdom of God is not advanced through coercion or force, or by Christians seizing control of governments like the so-called Christian nationalists are trying to do in the United States. It is advanced when people surrender their lives to Jesus' kingship and live lives of self-giving love and sacrifice for others in his name. And I don't think it's stretching the story, or indeed the painting, too far to say that we are also being reminded here that we have to choose a side. We can either side with the innocents or side with the forces of empire, but we can't do both. In the lowliness of his birth and the examples of his life, Jesus showed us that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed, the marginalised and the outcast. And we can either be on his side or on the side of the powers and authorities opposed to him and his rule, but we can't do both. Missiologist Michael Frost has written that the followers of Christ are called not to side with empire, but to sit with the terrified to comfort those who mourn, to join the meek and the merciful and pure in heart, and to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that only Jesus can bring. And that too is part of the Christmas story. Thanks for listening.